I would be remiss if I did not take the time to thank you for your hospitality today and the kind words and the, the friendships that I have renewed and, and some of the friendships that I have started. If I named all the people that I already knew before I came here, kids who grew up in my youth group and kids whose dads were in churches where I first worked in the early 80s, I'd leave somebody out. So I'm just glad to have seen you and thank you for your kindness. Uh, the, the song service has been outstanding the scriptures have been capably read, uh, both services this morning, and, and you just encouraged me in, in a great, great way. Um, tonight, as we end our, our session, uh, I thought that we'd talk about communication. Nine times out of ten, when people say, let's talk about communication, they mean conflict resolution. Because they say, when we start talking to each other, we, we don't get things done. So really, when I talk about communication, I typically talk about conflict. And, and all of you have, have seen those faux pas in communication. I did a, uh, a training for a security firm that offers the security to the local hospitals. There's a guy there in town, and for lack of a better name, we'll call him Sam. And Sam is the director of this thing, and he puts his cadets through a certain academy. And when they graduate from the academy, they bring them to the ropes course and, and we put them through some of the activities that, that we do. The last two or three times, the guys who haven't done well on the ropes course don't stay employed with the security people. So they've started doing that on the front end to kind of do it as a weed out of there. But I was talking with Sam, and uh, Sam said that he had to tase a guy in the hospital the, the other night. He's, it's his job to kind of keep the peace. He said he went into the... the ICU unit, and this guy was there. He had a family member there, and evidently the gentleman was somehow hearing impaired because he was trying to sign, and Sam signs minimally, and so it escalated, and as it turned out, Sam had to tase him. And so when you tase someone in a multi-million dollar operation like the hospital, you will meet with the board of directors. So Sam's there. Sam was talking to me about his communication style. He said, so I'm standing there. Everybody, you know, who has anything to do with my employment is there. And he said, well, this guy was, now he's hearing impaired. And they say, well, why did you tase him? And Sam says the immortal, he wasn't listening. <laughs> Sometimes what I try to say doesn't come out like I want it to. 82-year-old uh, Lily Smith lived in Salem, Arkansas when I was graduating from Harding University. I was the minister at this little church in Salem, and I would go see Lily and sit on her porch and talk with her, and, and she didn't hear very well. And I said, I, Miss Lily, I bought my wife a puppy. And she said, what? I said, I bought my wife a puppy. She said, I don't understand what you're talking about. I said, Miss Lily, I bought Miss Jackie a little puppy. I can't understand you. I said, Miss Lily, I bought my wife a little baby dog. You mean a puppy. Why didn't you just say so? <laughs> and that's how communication works out. I think I'm telling you clearly, and you don't think I'm hearing you. The importance of communication just for illustrative purposes. Genesis chapter 11. If you don't mark your scriptures, they'll move them. Those Bible elves will get in there and move stuff around. There's Genesis chapter 11. 
Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. God comes down and sees this unified people who have a mission, they have a plan, they have the resources, they have the tools, they have the technology, and they're building their tower. And God himself said... There's nothing these people can't do if they put their mind to it. How would you stop an operation like this? Well, you know the story. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. And therefore the name of the place is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Very simply, God said, if I don't want these people to be successful in building this city and this tower, all I've got to do is keep them from understanding each other. If I can disrupt their communication, their project will fail. Well, folks, the devil is not a slacker, and the devil is not incompetent in what he does in trying to destroy the lives of men. And if we are building a house and trying to build that house on the firm foundation of Jesus' teachings, and the devil wants to stop our construction project, all he's got to do is interfere and interrupt with our communication. And one of the toughest things to do is to get parents and young people to talk to each other, and sometimes one of the toughest things to do is get adults to begin to talk to each other. In communication, there's a couple of functions that we need to understand. Some, some real simple rules. If you look in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 12. And there's some things here in Judges 12 I don't really understand. And I'll just admit that up front. Judges 12, 1. Now then the men of Ephraim gathered together. They crossed over toward Zaphon and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down with fire. Now... Jephthah has been in conflict. The people of Ephraim are mad at him because you said you didn't ask us to come help you go to war because we wanted to be your ally. And since you didn't invite us to be your ally, we're going to burn your houses down. With friends like these, who needs enemies? But his response is, Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me to fight against me today? You didn't invite us to fight with you, so we're going to burn your houses down. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I asked you to come, and you wouldn't go, so that's what I did. I took it upon myself since you wouldn't help me. They say you didn't ask us. He said, I did ask you. They said we weren't invited. He said, you didn't come. 
And because of this struggle, they go to war. And so they strive against each other. Verse 4, Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Giladites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. Now I'm not sure what that means, but you better not say it to an Ephraimite. That's equivalent to your mother wears army sandals. I mean, it's bad because it, it got them going in this war. So they're in this battle and they're fighting with them. Now the Giladites seized the fords of the Jordan. And, that, and, and what this means is they've gone to the Jordan River and they found a low place where you can cross the river. That is the ford of the Jordan. If that's for me, I'm busy. Uh, it's, it's, it, they, they've seized the fords. I come from a little town that used to be called Lick Skillet, Alabama. And if you go to Lick Skillet, Alabama, and you find Snow's Creek, there was a place in Snow's Creek where the oxen could ford. And there was an ox ford at Lick Skillet. Well, now it's just called Oxford, and nobody remembers Lick Skillet. Oxford, Alabama. That's where I grew up. They seized the fords, this low place in the river. They've, they've basically done a flanking maneuver, and they trapped these guys in hostile territory. And when they try to cross out, here's what happens. Now, they seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they would take hold of him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Folks, these guys are trying to cross the river and the password is Shibboleth. And apparently if you're from northern or southern Israel, you can't say Shibboleth. You have to say Sibboleth. And they try to say it and they don't say it right and they get killed because of it. Kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but it's not what you say, but how you say it in communication. Now, young people, you will say things, and your parents will say, don't you be disrespectful to me. And you go, I'm not being disrespectful. Okay. Young ladies, I can't do it and demonstrate it for you, but you, you are genetically predisposed with the ability to roll your eyes and see the prefrontal cortex of your brain. And when you go, yes, sir, your dad translates that as, she'd like me to break her neck. It sends him into a frenzy, and it's not what you say, but how you say it. And guys, when you tell your wife, fine, you're right. No. There's some humility got to be involved in that. More than 90% of our body language, of our language and communication is nonverbal. And so, young men, when you go, yes, sir, you haven't said yes, sir. You've said the right words, but you've said them in the wrong way. And a lot of times, communication is not what you say, but how you say it. Now, moms and dads, when you begin to debate or when you begin to discuss with a young person what is respect and what is disrespect, it's real easy to just simply define that. And I'm honored when my daughter thinks I'm cool enough to talk to me in cool terms. But if I'm in parent mode, I'm not worried about being cool. This is not personal. This is business. 
I'll like, tell you what, I'm not sure what you mean by this, and I'm not sure what you mean by this, but I'll tell you what, without a doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, I translate as respectful. So if you don't want it to be in any gray area, that's what you say. And anything else is suspect to my interpretation. So it's not what you say, but how you say it. Rule number two, it's not what you say, but why you say it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Have you heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder? And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rekah shall be in danger of the council, and whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Jesus is talking after he finishes the Beatitudes. He talks about salt and light. Then Jesus is going to say, I don't want you to get the idea that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy them. I came to fulfill them. Now, if your righteousness doesn't do a better job than the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't go to heaven. And then he begins to instruct them on internals versus externals. And he said, you really get wrapped up in the fact that, that, that the law says you shouldn't kill. Thou shalt not murder. And most of you can sit and go, I've never killed anybody. And I think with the exception of guys in the military and police officers, you can ask this audience, you ever killed anybody? And the answer would be no. It's not a problem my brethren struggle with. It's just not one of those issues. Occasionally there might be an accident, but that's not murder. And we pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, I've never killed anybody. But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, it's not just enough to say that you don't kill anybody. Have you ever looked at your brother and said, Rekah? Rekah is Aramaic. It means empty-headed one. It goes down and, and, and says the word fool. When we were growing up, my dad would not allow the word fool to be said in our house. Now, my brother is Gerald Jones. He's the Associate Dean of Business at Faulkner University. He graduated from high school as the valedictorian, top 1% of the nation in some of the top percentages of the people who took the ACT and in the top 10% of the people who took the law school entrance exam. He read 800 words a minute with 95% comprehension in the eighth grade. And then they had me. My algebra teacher used to point out, you realize, Mr. Jones, they stopped after you. Uh, my greatest pleasure on the planet was to do things to my very intellectual brother and get him to call me a fool. Because when our dad, whom our friends called the Iron Claw, heard him call me a fool, he'd get a hold of him. Folks, the word fool is not a bad word. The word rekah, Aramaic for empty-headed one, is not a bad word. Jesus says if you can look at somebody who's created in the image of God, say, you fool, you idiot, you punk, you dweeb, you nerd, you dork, you loser, you insert your racial slur. It's not whether or not you've ever killed anybody. But have you ever looked at anybody created in the image of God and somebody that Jesus died for and in your heart label them as something less than somebody that God loves? 
And see, it's not the word fool or the word reka, but the condition of your heart that produces any word that you would call anyone for any reason. It's not what you say, but how you say it. And it's not what you say, but why you say it. Look in the book of Ephesians for just a minute. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. When I tell you something, when I say something to you, when I point out something, the purpose of what I'm going to say, first of all, can't be corrosive. It can't be acidic. It can't be possessing of corruption. But instead, it's got to be what is good for necessary edification. If I'm going to tell you that you're doing something wrong, I need to tell you that what you're doing is wrong in such a way that you can fix it and make you better. If I tell you something and it makes you better, that's constructive criticism. But if I tell you stuff just because it makes me feel better, folks, that's just criticism. John Gottman is a therapist, and I like a lot of his work. He writes several good books, uh, Seven Principles for Strengthening Marriages, Ten Rules for Strengthening Marriages, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. He works out of Seattle. He, he's the only guy on, in the country who's doing empirically-based research on relationships. And Gottman says that he can sit in a room, observe a couple, communicate during a conflict, and in 10 minutes predict divorce with 95% accuracy. And he says, I can tell how people talk, the way they talk and the things they say to each other and I can tell you whether or not that relationship is healthy or whether or not that relationship is doomed. And his number one focus is these four simple warning signs. And the four simple warning signs he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Number one is when complaints sound like criticisms. Not what you say but how you say it not what you say, but why you say it. If I tell you something and it seems like it's designed to hurt, to wound, to corrupt, to mess up, rather than to actually get to a solution of a problem, I am communicating with you in a style that is designed to hurt you and it eventually will hurt us. It's the difference in a wife tells her husband, you're never home. Or she says, I wish we spent more time together. Now that's the same message, isn't it? But one of those has some honey in it, and one of those has some rattlesnake venom in it. And, and when, when we look at what am I saying, how am I saying it, and why am I saying it, you've got to ask yourself, is this a complaint or is it a criticism? The next thing Gottman warns about is if you focus only on the negative. You get a little couple sitting in the office, she's crying. He's stonewalling, got those big arms folded, and he's leaned back. And you say, well, okay, just think back to a time when you guys were happy. And that little girl looks and says, you know, we've had problems for so long, I can't remember being happy. So now what you're telling me is you took a beautiful spring day and $10,000 of your daddy's money, and you rented a building and had custom-made dresses that your best friends would look bad in, and you stood in front of God and all these witnesses and said, I promise to do everything I can to make you miserable for the rest of your life. Now, folks, if I understand it right, that ain't how you pitch a wedding, right? 
You mean to tell me that, that you got married and you were miserable? No, no, we were in love. Then think back to a time when you were in love and think about the things that worked. Quit thinking about the things that don't work. Because when you're thinking about the things that don't work, you don't want it to work. How many times have you traded a perfectly good car because you didn't like something about it? But instead of realizing it had good tires, good brakes, and was paid for, you couldn't get over that dent in the side or you couldn't get over that rattle under the hood, or you couldn't get past whatever, and you take a perfectly good car, and when you only focus on the negative, you get rid of it. How many times have we focused on what's not working rather than what is working? And when we focus on that, and the only thing we talk about in a relationship is what's not working, then we don't want it to work. Because we're pointing out not the things that we're thankful for, but the things that we just don't like. Folks, you can get trapped in a negative spiral and negative yourself into oblivion. There's an old worn-out preacher story about a guy they're teaching to parachute. He's right, you stand in the door and you jump out the plane, you count to 10, you put your right hand over your left shoulder and you pull your ripcord and your parachute comes out. If that doesn't work, you count to 10, put your left hand over your right shoulder and you pull your ripcord and your reserve chute will come out. You float to the target area and the trucks will pick you up and take you back to the base. Old boy jumps out of the plane. One, two, three, five, six, eight, nine, ten. Nothing happens. He panics, looks around, reaches over the shoulder, pulls out. Nothing happens. He's rocketing toward the ground. Last guy passed heard him say, yeah, I bet them trucks ain't going to be down there neither. <laughs> well, at that point, it's a little late to be worried about what's not going to work. Sometimes in relationships, we focus only on the negative. And listen to what this verse says. Do not let any corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Don't focus on the things that are bad. Don't focus on the things that are wrong. Look at the next verse, verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with all malice. Get rid of the negativity. Get rid of the things that wound. Get rid of the things that harm. Get rid of the things that don't improve. The things that aren't for necessary building up. Now sometimes there's things that, that, that you say that I can't fix. There's things that you talk about that, that have no reason to be brought up. Now, that's one of those subtle differences between men and women. Women will make random comments that they don't want addressed. Men, when they talk about something, want it changed. If we sit down in a restaurant and my wife gets a salad and says, hmm, this salad has an awful lot of onions in it. I go, excuse me, garçon, look, we need to get it. No, no, no. My salad's fine. No, you just said it had a lot of onions in it. I was just merely making conversation. I don't make conversations about onions. But sometimes we say things that we don't necessarily want changed or we don't necessarily want fixed. We just say them. And sometimes it sounds like you're complaining or it sounds like that you're being negative. Eliminate focusing on the negative. Now, I'm not saying that you can't talk about the elephant that's in the room. But there's a right way and a wrong way. Not what you say, but how you say it. Not what you say, but why you say it. You can't let negativity and complaints that sound like criticism enter into the relationship. The third horseman of the apocalypse is defensiveness. Defensiveness we've covered just a little bit this morning when we talked about minimization, denial, and blame. If you bring something to my attention and you tell me that it's not working or that there's something wrong and there's a good way to fix it, and I respond to, well, it's not my fault, or the reason I did this was because, or it's not a big deal. Anything other than a legitimate attempt to solve the problem is a dodge. 
And there's a difference in trying to solve the problem and trying to get out of trouble. Listen to this very simple verse. It's a little out of context, but I think it's a good principle. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may find something to give him who has need. If you recognize that the problem is, I'm stealing. There's the complaint. Let him who stole stop stealing. And instead of stealing, labor with your hands, and then you'll have the stuff to give people our need, and you don't have to steal. If you find something in a relationship that's not working, quit trying to defend it and just stop doing it. If you do the same thing the same way and expect different results, it's a sign of insanity. You ladies who cook, how many, how many pans of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brownies do you have to make before you turn the oven down? I can't believe in things are burning up, you know. No, the first time they come out there and they're Cajun brownies, you do something different with them. But in a relationship, you know, every time I come in late, she's mad at me. Every time I don't call, every time I don't... If you can deliver a pattern, A plus B equals C, you've got the power to change the A. You've got the power to be the peacemaker. Young people, if you know what sets your parents off, try something different. The interesting thing about behavior with young people is sometimes the purpose of the behavior is to make you mad. All human behavior, okay, probably not all, most human behavior is reward motivated. I do what I do because it gets me something I want. And when my behavior costs me more than it costs you, I'll change my behavior. If I can do something to you in a conversation or do something to you in a conflict and your initial response is, <gasps> that's a fight or flight response. I've kicked in your adrenal system and you are looking at this in an emotional standpoint and not an intellectual standpoint. In fact, that's an inverse proportionate graph. If you draw a square and cut it in half from corner to corner, the big side is your emotion, the little side is your intellect. While your emotions are high, your intellect is low. When your emotions are low, your intellect is high. And what happens in conflict so many times is I let you or I let myself get cranked up into an emotional state. I've got an 18-year-old daughter. And the longer I argue with her, the younger I get. If we go for about 30 minutes, I end up in the fifth grade. Did to, did not, your mom, you know, that kind of stuff. And what you've got to do is you've got to be able to not get drawn into that. He who controls the mood controls the room. And sometimes we don't understand that people do things in communication for the simple purpose of dodging the object at hand and get us into an emotional state. Oh, you don't love me as much as you love Billy. Well, you do too. If you, once you change the subject from discipline to attacking that emotional trap they've thrown out, you've lost the battle. You've got to, as parents, understand that you're not looking for defensiveness from your kids and you don't have to defend your position. If somebody says, this is not fair or this is not right or you're ruining my life, you've got to, this is not personal, this is business. If you want to be a good parent when it comes to discipline, rent the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the sheepdog and the coyote. They walk to work together. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Sam. They shake hands and they clock in. 
When the, sheep, when the coyote tries to steal sheep, the sheepdog pounds him, the whistle blows, they have lunch together. It's not personal, it's business. Their job is to steal sheep. His, dog is, his job as a sheepdog is to pound you. A teenager's job is to try to seek independence. The parent's job is to stop that independence when they're too young to do it. And it's not personal, it's business. But a teenager can make it feel personal, get you into an emotional state, and you're defensive all the time. And if I can put you on the defensive, I can win anything. It's called button pushing by Stephen Glenn. And if I can get you pushing and being defensive, you're not trying to solve the problem, you're being distracted. In either case, if defensiveness comes into a communication or a conflict style, you're not after the object anymore. You've chased something out here on the periphery. When you find something that doesn't work, change it, and that's it. I asked my fifth grader to take the trash out, and the fifth grader doesn't do it. You can stomp and scream and yell and holler and threaten physical abuse or whatever you want to do, or you can let it go. And then the fifth grader says, hey, I've got baseball practice. Well, as soon as you carry the trash out, we can go. Pay me now. Pay me later. But you're going to pay me. Well, I ask you to take the trash out, and it's been an hour and a half, and you hadn't taken it out. You need to go somewhere now. I'm going to get my hour and a half of compliance back. In an hour and a half, we'll leave for practice. If you want me to do for you what you need, then you do for me what I ask when I ask, because after all, I am the adult. But when you start trying to defend why it's your right to be, you don't have to defend that as a parent. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, one of the, the, the problems we have sometimes with working with a group of individuals on a ropes course is people don't like to abide by our rules. And one of my questions is, when you looked in the mirror this morning, did you see my face? And they say, no. Then I say, mm, you're not in charge. And it works for me. <laughs> and sometimes it works with your kids too because all the adults in the house please raise your hand oh you're not an adult you don't get to vote all right now let's do this and you don't have to be mad you don't have to be angry you don't have to posture you don't have to defend your right to request something be done or something not be done because you are the adult and as a child it's your job to comply and anytime you get defensive about why you shouldn't or why you don't have to you're not trying to solve the problem you're trying to get out of trouble. If you recognize that there's something that's not working, let him who stole stop stealing and do the opposite. And then the last one from John Gottman is if we have a conflict and I make a repair attempt, instead of you turning toward me, you turn away from me, that is a warning sign deeply. Um, your wife decides to buy a major product and save you money. <laughs> See, the guys laugh at that because, you know, honey, it was $1,000 and I got it for 800 I saved you $200. No, you didn't. You spent $800. Right? Well, now, that conversation comes up and, and, and you get angry and you act like a child and, and you, you talk about we'll starve to death and all this kind of stuff. Well, you go to her the next day and you say, Honey, I lost my temper last night about the $200 you saved me. She can say, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to be economically sound and I know that you're passionate about us having a good financial future and, and I understand that it, it gets you when we understand when we get unexpected expenses. 
You see how you've made a repair attempt and she's turned towards you. Or you come to her and say, you know, last night you, we talked about that money you spent and, and I kind of lost my temper. And she says, yeah, and you lose your temper a lot. In fact, you lost your temper last week and you lost your temper last month and it seemed like all you ever do is talk about money and throw up what I spent in my face. You see how he's trying to build a bridge and she's burning the planks? When somebody makes a repair attempt, you've got to reciprocate to that and say, I accept your apology. I understand you're offering me peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We'll go back to verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Folks, if we take these simple principles found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 23 through 32, we can eliminate in our conversations and in our conflict resolution complaints that sound like criticisms, focusing only on the negative, being defensive, and turning away rather than turning toward. What happens so many times is that we get so busy in trying to let the other person... Let me do it this way. In communication, the most important function is not for me to make you understand me, but for me to strive to understand you. Now, if I'm yelling, understand me, and she's yelling, no, understand me, and I yell, no, understand me, and she says, no, understand all we're doing is competing. But when I attempt to understand you and you attempt to understand me, that is truly communication from the Greek word that means to commune or the Greek word that means to share. It's even the word where we get fellowship, where there is an exchange. And that even really applies to young people that you've got to understand your parents' perspective See, if you're 17 years old, how many times have you been 17? Just once. Now, at 17, you're as old as you've ever been. You've had all the experience you've ever had. I've got a climbing harness at 17 years old. It's not that impressive a number to me anymore. You've got to understand that your parents can see things you can't see, and they know things that you don't know. Please be willing to listen to them. And so if you say, Mom, I can't understand why you won't let me go, well, try to understand why she doesn't want you to go and ask her, what is so bad about midnight? Well, there's two kinds of people. There's people who live in the day, and then there's the nocturnal people. And you've got no reason being out on the streets of Nashville or Huntsville after midnight because the people who sleep all day come out after midnight to play, and they're not the people you want to be on the roads with, in the stores with, or anywhere else with. And your mom and dad know that. You know why they know that? Because they've lived long enough to be smart enough to know it. And sometimes they know things you don't know and can see things you can't see. When you were two years old, they wouldn't let Mr. Hairpin and Mr. Electrical Outlet be friends. Why? Because they knew something about electricity that you didn't know. And every rule they made for you when you were a toddler is the same kind of rules they make for you as a teenager. And you've got to decide, I want to see their perspective. Communication boils down then to seeking understanding of each other. Complaints don't sound like criticisms. You can't focus on the negative. You can't be defensive. And if somebody offers a repair attempt, you turn toward them instead of away from them. It's not what you say, but how you say it. It's not what you say, but why you say it. And that's basically communication and conflict resolution 101. There's some deeper stuff and there's more material, but we're out of time tonight.
and that should get you at least started. John Gottman's book, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, or Seven Principles for Strengthening Marriages, really talks about the relationship. And interesting in Gottman's theories, he says it's not if my family conflicts, it's a sign of dysfunction. He says, in fact, it's not, conflict has nothing to do. It's what your conflicts accomplish as to whether or not your life is healthy or not. It's not whether or not we don't conflict that make us have a strong marriage, but what we do with the conflicts that determine whether our marriages are strong or not. And that's very, very interesting to me because sometimes we've said, well, we can't discuss anything badly, and, and that's not what the research is showing. It's, it's not that you conflict, but how healthy you solve those conflicts. Now, before we wrap up, again, we've said several times today that, that, yeah, we've talked about relationships with family. But the most important relationship is your relationship with God. The gospel can be defined in one word, and that one word is relationship. God has communicated his love toward us. Sometimes we misunderstand that. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 3 that some people hear about the fragrance of Christ and they smell death. And some people, they smell life. Some people, when they hear about God and Christianity, smell the death of the things that they have to give up. And some people understand what God has already given up for them. God says, I want a relationship with you. If you're not one of my children, if you have never obeyed the gospel, if you've never by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism been immersed in and become a child of mine, I want to, to be your father and I want you to be free from your sins. God also says, if you're one of my children and you've wandered off, you become prodigal, you've become wasteful. I want you to come home and I want you to adopt the position that says, God, I'll submit to you and be a servant. And as soon as we take on the position of being a servant, God will let us be children again. God says in his communication toward us, look how much I love you. Look how much I'll give you. How in the world can you turn away from me? In the verse that God asks us to be sacrifices, he uses his mercies as his playing card. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God said, I want you to understand not what I threatened to do to you, but I want you to look at what I've done for you. And if I will love you this way when you're a sinner, if I will give my son for you when you're shaking your fist at me in rebellion, what would I do to save you? What would I do to keep you saved? If you need to fix your relationship with your mom or dad, or you need to fix your relationship with your husband or wife, go home tonight, sit down with the family, hold hands, tell each other what needs to be fixed, have a prayer, settle that business. But if you've got unfinished business with your Father in heaven, He's communicated in a style that says, I love you, I care for you, I want you to be safe, I want you to be home, I want you to be in my arms, and there's nothing you can do that can separate you from me other than choose to be separated. And God waits for us with open arms, and God says, I want you to come home. If you're not in God's family tonight, you need to come tonight and be reconciled to your heavenly Father so that you can be the kind of father, the kind of mother, the kind of husband, the kind of wife, or the kind of child that you need to be. Let's end this day with making sure that everybody is in the right relationship with God. If you have a need, come forward while we stand and while we sing.